and welcome to the Executive Security Podcast, where we talk to CISOs and other leaders in the cybersecurity space about their careers. Our goal in this podcast is to inspire others to join the fight. My name is Gene Fay, and I'm the CEO of API security company ThreadX and the host of the Executive Security Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jim Routh. Jim has a long history in technology and cybersecurity as a leader and a management consultant. He was formerly a cybersecurity leader for many large companies, including Mass Mutual, CVS Health, Aetna, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He is also the former board chair for the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, HISAC, where he served for five years, and former board member for the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the FSISAC. Jim currently sits on several boards and also acts as an advisor to several cybersecurity companies and venture funds. Jim brings to the board a vast business and technology background. It's considered a digital and cybersecurity industry expert and thought leader. And finally, Jim is an ICIT fellow and adjunct faculty member at NYU. Jim, how are you today? Gene, I'm great and uh, look forward to the opportunity to chat with you today. Absolutely, Jim. And I'm super excited. We've gotten to know each other over the the years back when you were at Aetna, and uh, it's just been fantastic. And you are truly a thought leader, and uh, I'm just, uh, you know, we're honored to have you. Uh, you have a wealth of knowledge, and I know you have real passion, just like I do, in helping others to join this industry. So uh, I think this is a perfect alignment to both of our goals of of helping the industry and, and helping individuals be a part of this. So, so awesome. So I, I usually start with a question about how did you become a CISO and how did you get involved in cybersecurity Uh, But I did my research, and I understand you've got an interesting story about uh, how you made a transition in in life to become part of cybersecurity industry, and it has to do with your wife. So why don't you tell everybody about that? Sure. I'd be happy to, Gene. I got to tell you, you know, it really started when I was in uh, college. I took cybersecurity courses. I got a cybersecurity degree, and then I got my first job uh, as an intern in cybersecurity, and then I did cybersecurity, and then I did no. (laughs) <laughs> I don't believe like, any of that. I don't think that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in college, I, I could, you couldn't spell cybersecurity. It didn't exist. Uh, so, uh, no, I didn't have that choice. Matter of fact, I was a history major as undergrad. So that just tells you that uh, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur and uh, work uh, you know, for my own company. And uh, so I just happened to study what I was interested in, which happened to be history at the time. So I, like many cybersecurity professionals, I kind of found my way into cybersecurity quite by accident. And uh, in this case, I I had a strong influence with my wife. And I'll just tell the story that uh, I moved my family out to Minneapolis. uh, And uh, I did that to avoid travel because I was doing a consulting gig, uh, actually working for a consulting firm and traveling quite a bit. So I ended the travel and and could work for American Express out in uh, Minneapolis, which was wonderful. And then the first winter was relatively mild by Minneapolis standards. So that kind of helped solidify the decision to move. And my wife was supportive and the family was fine. They, of course, they were young at the time. And then the second two winters, well, not so mild. Uh, they were typical traditional winters there. So by the third winter, at the end of the third winter, lots of things happen at the, around the dinner table for a family. So my wife said, look, the kids and I are moving back east. Would you like to come? <laughs> And that's when I realized that I was faced with a decision that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. I was actually interviewing for another job that would have kept me in Minneapolis for a while because I actually enjoyed it there. It was lovely. Of course, I was uh, you know, driving in a car uh, to 15, 20-minute commute, light jacket, 
heated garage to heated garage. She's taking the kids, you know, shopping and picking them up at school and activities. It's 40 below. She's got like a two-year-old, you know, a six-year-old, four-year-old, uh, maybe six-year-old and a eight-year-old. So it was, uh, well, anyway, she had the hard end of the bargain. So when she asked me that question, I said, absolutely. I asked my boss, I said, look, get me out of here. <laughs> and he said, sure, I'll give you a job. Uh, I ended up, he said, look, we don't have anything. He was the CIO. We didn't have anything in IT, but we have this other job in uh, marketing data analytics. I said, I'll sweep the floors. I don't care what it is. So he did. He moved me back. Good, God bless him for doing that. And uh, so I started in uh, data analytics, marketing data analytics. And it's what uh, they call them econometricians at the time. I think they'd be data scientists by today's uh, terminology. I didn't realize that, but that actually prepared me exceptionally well for cybersecurity because today I fundamentally believe that data science is foundational in cybersecurity. Absolutely. But of course, yeah. I knew none, none of that back then. Frankly, I didn't know a whole lot back then about cybersecurity. But I ended up being, the, see, the uh, marketing analytics team merged with the risk management team, and the risk management team reported to the chief risk officer. And so because I had an IT background reported to the chief risk officer, I looked like an attractive CISO candidate for the first CISO at American Express, largely because they were wonderful people and very talented, but they didn't have a clue what they should do for cybersecurity. So that's why I got the job because they didn't have a clue. So my first job in cybersecurity was as a CISO, uh, was a bit unusual, uh, but I really owe it all, Gene, to my wife because she right. yes. made that declarative <laughs> statement at dinner. I don't think I wouldn't have ended up in uh, cybersecurity and I'm very grateful I did. That's awesome. We always say our our other half is usually the smarter half of any relationship. So uh, she's I'm, not only smarter; she's also a lot nicer. Uh, yeah. So. People <laughs> say to me, "Hey, I met your wife. She's very nice." Oh, you must be Jim. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty clear yeah. indication. They think she's a lot nicer, and I think they're right. Exactly. And my wife is the same way. Very even keeled and liked by everybody. So uh, yeah, my my opposite in many ways. But that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. And I was just also looking at your LinkedIn profile and. Very happenstance, uh, but well-timed. Uh, you just released a new ICIT report, the role of cybersecurity leaders, educators. And uh, as I read through that, I thought there were so many things. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes for anybody, CISOs, people in cybersecurity, people thinking about getting cybersecurity, are going to get a lot out of it. And one of the pullaways that I pulled out of there was the idea of interviewing people, but not for roles, but just to expand your network and kind of think about the people as opposed to thinking about the roles. And I wonder maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and expand on that. Yeah, sure. When I started in cybersecurity, there were very rigid structures and job descriptions for specific roles, a SOC analyst one, you know, a SOC analyst two, you know, a security architect one, a security architect two. And so there was a lot of structure and a lot of specific skill requirements and certifications for the specific roles. Not saying it's good or bad, that's just kind of the way it was. And I think when an enterprise uh, puts a job description together in a role and posts it and looks the best talent and chooses the best talent based on the available candidates, I think that model you know, was built for a baseline assumption that the market had plenty of talent to offer the enterprise. And today we're in a very different situation in which there is not nearly enough supply of talent to meet the specific demand for talent 
this is not a new phenomena. And in fact, it's not going to change. Not anytime soon, not in the next five years. And so the reality is there is not enough skilled cybersecurity talent in the marketplace to satisfy the demand. And the demand is increasing faster than the supply, which is why I'm telling you this problem is not going to go away. It's just going to get bigger. It's going to get worse. Exactly. So my premise here is that our practices for HR management have to change fundamentally change. And we have to actually use some unconventional techniques. Now, one of the techniques is what you mentioned, Gene, which is don't fit people into roles, create roles to satisfy people. Now, the baseline of all of this is that we as cybersecurity professionals have to understand what the interests are of our cybersecurity talent. Specifically, what skills do they want to learn? What marketable skills that they want to learn? Now, it turns out that that's their responsibility, not our responsibility. Our responsibility as leaders is to know what it is they wish to learn. That's a personal choice on their part. It's very similar to a charitable giving program in any kind of enterprise. The individual makes a decision to invest. The organization says, under these boundaries with these kinds of constraints, we'll match that investment. Well, from a learning and development standpoint, the individual should choose, hey, I want to do pen testing. Well, wait a minute, Jim, you're a SOC analyst. They don't do pen testing. Yeah, but I want to do pen testing. So I want to learn the skills necessary to do pen testing. It's not in my current job description. It's what's in my future. And I'm going to choose that. And if you can't give me that opportunity, that's okay. I'll go somewhere yeah. where I can get that opportunity, right? right. That's, yeah. that's really the way the marketplace works. As leaders, we have to adjust. Now, what does that mean? It means that we have to decouple what has been part of the performance management process, which is give the employee feedback on their performance and what they might have to develop in terms of skills and competencies. We have to decouple that and say, no, Talent management is something we as leaders are going to spend 30% of our time on and make a fundamental commitment to teaching people what they choose they wish to learn. And frankly, if that makes them more marketable to take a job in the future at another enterprise, we're going to do it and we're going to make a commitment to that. Now, it turns out that if you as a leader make that commitment and adjust roles based on what your employees wish to learn, they will have choices to go work somewhere else. And guess what? They won't choose to go work somewhere else. Your job as the leader is to give them those opportunities. If you do that successfully, they will stick with that opportunity to learn marketable skills that you're committing to versus take more money to go somewhere else in a different environment. And so it actually is in your best interest and the organization's best interest. And you know what? If some of those people leave to go to get a better opportunity, God bless them. I'm happy for that because there's at least 15 CISOs today that would not have been CISOs if they hadn't left and gotten those opportunities when they work with me. And I'm glad they did. I'm happy for them. So it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about talent management. I would, uh, again, we'll share in the show notes, but I think CISOs, VPs, anybody in a leadership position should definitely read your piece. 
because I, I do think it's a slightly different way to think about it and counterintuitive as you as you pointed out but I agree with it a hundred percent so uh, well done Jim glad glad you're sharing your your wealth of knowledge with the industry so uh, as you know like part of the podcast is helping people get into this industry people that don't know anything about it and maybe they don't know SOC means security operations center and some of the really basic things that you and I have been doing it for 20 plus years uh, take for granted but if you if you had somebody come to your house in Naples tomorrow and and talk about, hey, hey Jim, I want to get into cyber. I've got an associate's degree. I've got a bachelor's degree, maybe tactical, non-technical. Like, where, where does somebody begin the journey? Yeah, the first thing I do is I tell them to talk to my sons. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have three boys. They're wonderful. Uh, all of them. They're a lo- lot smarter than I am. I'm a, by a factor of ten. I think they're smarter than I am. But. Two of them are in cybersecurity and very successful in cybersecurity as practitioners, which is why I said, have them go talk to my sons. But in reality, what I tell anyone who's, and it doesn't matter what your background is, if you're interested in cybersecurity, the first thing I do is give them a reading list. And I have a list of cybersecurity books that I've read, and I have little comments about them. And I basically say, look, it's not like one book or you know, you have to read all of them. Just pick a book that's interesting that to you for whatever reason, read that book, and then identify somewhere around 15 or 20 questions that you have that are triggered by content that you've read in the book. Try to use similar terminology. Those questions give you ammunition in any kind of interview context for a professional opportunity to ask those questions. Now you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, in an interview, aren't you supposed to answer questions? And the the answer is no, (laughs) you're supposed to ask questions. Why? Because the one skill that neither I or any other cybersecurity leader can teach is intellectual curiosity. And it turns out that every other skill we can teach you. So I don't worry about whatever the technical skills are. I worry about the appetite to understand and learn because cybersecurity professionals are driven by threat actors who determine when they want to change techniques. And we have to constantly retool ourselves to understand different tactics and the control design implications of those tactics. So we're always learning something new. So intellectual curiosity has to be foundational. This is hard, tedious warfare in some cases. And, you know, that's the reality. And we can't change that. So intellectual curiosity, full stop, is the most important criteria. And so as someone interviewing, you don't have to show that you understand in-depth cybersecurity practices. You have to show that you have the ability to learn. And that starts with having the appetite to learn, and that's demonstrating that by asking a million questions. I tell all of the folks that I you know, work for in my organization, look, intellectually curious people have quirky behaviors. So tolerate the quirky behaviors and embrace them because foundationally they will be able to learn and thrive in cybersecurity, whereas others who don't have that appetite, they're gonna fail at some point simply because we don't make the rules, the threat actors do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And uh, we had Tom Quinn, uh, CISO at T. Rowe Price. He said exactly the same thing. I think that it shouldn't be intimidated by what you don't know in this industry. 
because it's continuously evolving. If you think about what it was 17 years ago when I was selling a SIM purely based on you know, a compliance requirement for somebody failing a, a PCI audit versus what it is today, it's changed. And, and part of what has helped me stay in the game and, and love it is that constantly learning new technology, learning new attack factors, lear- learning how CISOs like yourself are approaching different problems. If you're excited by that, that's why this industry, not only do I get you know, encourage everybody to join us, but it's like, this has got constant evolution. It's not one thing, you're not, not selling teacups and it stays the same for the next 30 years. Like it's going to iterate on a month to month, year to year basis. And that's what gets me so excited about it. Do you think you'd be able to share maybe some of that reading list and we can put that in the, the notes? The entire uh, list, I'll uh, email to you and share, be awesome. share it with everybody. And frankly, it's not like it's the be all end all. It, major messages here. If you're choosing a career in cybersecurity and or data science, you will be able to meet all your financial goals and you'll be able to live wherever it is you wish to live in this planet if you master those, either one or both of those competencies. So if you're going to invest, this is in terms of your time and effort, this is an area to do because it'll pay dividends. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And we we talk about the statistics. It's like, you know, forty-ish thousand dollars is the average salary in the U.S., and it's north of six figures. You know, one hundred and twenty, one hundred thirty thousand dollars the average salary in cybersecurity. And to your point, because there's supply and demand geographically, there's no boundaries, and uh, it, it's got the opportunity. Tons of advancement, and and like you, I've gotten to see lots of people go from uh, early in their careers in the you know, the entry-level positions to CISOs and CEOs and lots of exciting founders of really interesting companies. So there's just a lot to be said for what's going on. And I, I think that being curious and being a studied person is part of the journey and the easiest way to get into the game that that, that is cybersecurity. So well said, really excited. So on the CISO side, I, I know you kind of uh, had you know, your own interesting situation and early in your career when CISO positions were just being created. You know, the other part of our audience are people that are aspiring to be CISOs and, and they always you know, geek out when they get to meet somebody like yourself, Jim. What's the journey look like more today for you know, those 15 people that you've helped get jobs? You know, what do you think that, that somebody aspiring to become a CISO today that is a SOC manager or a director or a pen tester and they, they want to grow in a small or large organization? Like, What's the guidance you're giving them? So number one, there's a number of things that I learned as techniques and approaches that aren't published in any literature or books. And so I learned them by accumulating scar tissue. It means I made mistakes and I suffered the consequences of those mistakes. I learned from that experience because it hurt and I did something different. And I did something different until it worked. And then I stuck with what worked. Now, the technical side of the equation, readily available resources to help you with that. It's the softer skill sets that are somewhat unique to cybersecurity that create the biggest challenges for first-time CISOs. And this is the part that's not written down anywhere. So here's an example. My first CISO gig, as I told you, I was uh, appointed the first CISO. 
my stakeholders, which is the CEO and the directors, the direct reports to the CEO, they had expectations that I would be a subject matter expert. Why? Well, I knew a lot more about cybersecurity than they did. At least that's what they thought. <laughs> I question whether that was actually the case. But nonetheless, the easiest thing for me to do as a newbie CISO would be to meet their expectations. And so I did. <laughs> so I told them, well, these what I think the top risks of the enterprise are. And this, these are the things I think we should invest in, you know, in terms of capabilities and controls and so forth. And these are the things that I think we need to do. And they all nodded their heads and yeah, sounds really yeah, okay, Jim. Yeah, yeah, you're you're the expert here. Yeah, we'll do that, right? Well, guess what? I assumed that they were in total agreement on how to allocate scarce resource to the highest risk. Because I went through all this and they nodded their heads. No, I got no pushback anywhere, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And sure enough, we go into the, you know, the budget planning season. That's an annual event in large enterprises. In some cases, I think it's a high-risk sport. But nonetheless, we go into this and all of the decisions that I thought were kind of cast in concrete just eroded and, and disintegrated. And they all just went with their pet projects. And, and the reason that that happened is because what they did is they delegated the decisioning to the expert and then ignored it at the opportune time. That's meeting stakeholder expectations. I'm doing exactly, I'm playing right into their hands. And that's when I realized that oh, I'm not supposed to be the subject matter expert that has all of the knowledge and experience and opinions. I'm supposed to be the facilitator of consensus of the stakeholders on critical decisions on how to allocate scarce resources. Well, listen, just do a Google search on facilitation, meeting facilitation. The first thing that every source will tell you is you have to be unbiased. You have to convey neutrality to get input from others that are ultimately making the decision and coming to consensus. Your job is to facilitate that process. So you have to be a facilitator. A facilitator can't be a SME, can't be a subject matter expert. So you have to identify the SMEs that you want and you have to have one stakeholder play off against another stakeholder to come to consensus. And it turns out there's six levels of consensus. So facilitation skills and under the context of stakeholder expectation management, one of the most important essential skill sets for a CISO. You tell me, you ever seen that written down anywhere? Any books on that? Anything? No, no. right? So I'm now, fortunately, I'm a faculty member. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually designing cybersecurity courses. So I've designed a cybersecurity course on how to be a CISO. And I've tried to document all of the things that I learned the hard way that aren't written down anywhere to try to help the next generation. Yeah, it's uh, well said as always, Jim. And I think if I look at Eric Richards from HubSpot, who we talked to with David McLeod from Cox and Tom Quinn from t Row. All of them talked about the ability to communicate as the key. They didn't get into, oh, I had to understand X, Y, D, Z, or I had to know what XDR versus MSSP versus this. It's like, no, no, how to communicate. And specifically around the budget and taking complex, sophisticated risk models and need for uh, technology potentially or services potentially and putting that to the team, the leadership team in ways 
that makes sense to them and, and building that consensus and, uh, and, and walking away so that you don't get the pocket veto even when you got all the shaking heads and you go, yeah, but wait, I, I asked for X and, and, and I got Y. Like, what? So well said. And I, I think that's just key, key, key. So Gene, I would add communicator slash educator. Yes. Based on what we originally spoke about as well. Yes. I think yeah. I think those are the two things that aren't written down anywhere. But if you want to focus on being successful as a first-time CISO, focus on your communication skills, your facilitation skills, your education skills. Because yes. you know what? Board members need specific education. Business stakeholders need specific education. And frankly, the diversity of educational need across the enterprise is increasing, not decreasing. So. Right. We have to be educators, not only to attract and develop our own talent, but to help the entire enterprise. I've taught courses to the auditors. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, the auditors, they're there to make your life miserable, aren't they, Jim? And the answer is no. I'm there as I change design controls that use machine learning algorithms. I have to teach them a way for testing them effectively. I'm the one that introduced that change. I'm obligated to help them and teach them what they need. And that's different and unique than what the privacy people need. So we have to be educators. Yeah, no, that's so true. And it really comes down to if you're a manager, you're a VP, and you aspire to get to that next level in your career, uh, the advice Jim is giving you is just consistent with everything I'm hearing. So hopefully people could contextualize it and think about how to make it a part of your day-to-day job. Because if they do these things as a manager, they naturally get to a VP. If they do these things as a VP, they will naturally be selected as a CISO, whether at their current company or they'll find that right opportunity that that fits in and love with what they're aspiring to do. So, so great, great guidance, Jim, on that piece. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, last question here, uh, and I know you and I could talk for hours because we we do have a, a lot of things that we could share with people, but I, I think the context of some advice for our uh, people starting to get into the industry and our advice in terms of people uh, that are here want to become CISOs. I, I think you've just lent some great ideas and people can start to digest those. So last question is, you know, what's the best advice you were ever given by a mentor or a boss? Yeah. So my first mentorship experience started my first day in cybersecurity. And like everything, my first day in cybersecurity, I don't think I was really aware of it because I was kind of naive and ignorant, but uh, nonetheless, a friend of mine, a colleague who's in cybersecurity was walking by me in the hallway and he gave me a piece of paper and on it was like a person's name and a phone number. And he said, take this, put it in your pocket. He said, you'll use this when you get in over your head. And this guy like written books about cybersecurity is pretty knowledgeable. So I was like, hey, well, thanks for the endorsement. You know, like <laughs> I just put the piece of paper in my pocket. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to need this, right? I'm able to, you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound. So I'm looking at my calendar the first day and the second day, there's a meeting in the afternoon and the meeting was with the OCC. That's the Office of the uh, Control of the Currency. They're pretty uh, sophisticated, you know, cybersecurity experts that are part of the regulatory framework of a financial services organization. The title of the meeting was a presentation of the American Express Information Security Strategy. And that's when I realized that the reason I was designated as the first CISO at that particular time is my boss, who did a favor for me and got me out of Minneapolis, but did not want to go to this meeting or present. So he made sure that I was designated as the CISO 
that had to deal with this meeting. So I realized, you know, two things. Number one, that's what happened to my boss. And the second thing I realized is I was in over my head. <laughs> right? I'm scrambling for what to do. I pull out that piece of paper <laughs> and on it was written a guy named Steve Katz. He was the first CISO ever at Citibank, later at J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, he was retired at that time. And his name, phone number, literally, I called him immediately. I said, uh, Steve, I'm Jim. I'm first time CISO here at American Express. I got this really big problem with the OCC, right? It's all. He said, oh, Jim, no problem. Congratulations. By the way, I'll be over there in about 45 minutes. And I said, well, Steve, let me tell you where I am. Click. I was like, wow, that was interesting. 45 minutes later, he shows up. Not only does he show up, he brings two other CISOs from two other competitors in financial services. Wow who cleared their calendar for that afternoon and walked right to my desk, right to my workstation. So what's your password? So I'm thinking, oh, okay, they're testing me, right? I shouldn't tell them my password. And one of them says, no, you idiot. I'm doing the presentation. I need PowerPoint so we can put the slides together. Come on, let's get on with it, right? And needless to say, they put the entire presentation together for me. They asked me very few questions. They were following a rote formula that worked and, and it was highly successful at the time. They basically said, okay, you now deliver the presentation to us. We'll critique it as if we're the OCC. I did that and they shredded me, you know, in terms of some of the terminology and what I did. I was like, oh man. And then at the end of that, they said, okay, you're ready. And I was like, I don't really feel ready, guys. They're like, now nah, yeah, you'll be fine. So they left, you know, six o'clock. Next day, come in at two o'clock in the afternoon, show up the meeting, give them the presentation. At the end of the presentation, the OCC says, that sounds like a very reasonable plan that uh, you're on in terms of your strategic direction. So you're good. You satisfy the requirements of the MOU. We'll see you in another year. Wow. And needless to say, you know, I was like, well, I survived, you know, but that's about as good as it gets with regulators. And all of that was because of what they did for me and really for the industry. And that's when I learned that our job as cybersecurity professionals is to help each other yes. and times of crisis and times of needs. And that's all they were uh, doing for me. Now, Steve also, who is still my mentor today, by the way, but he said to me, look, let me explain you way, the way mentoring works. Number one, you're the mentee. You decide when to meet. Number two, you decide the agenda for the topics that you want to cover. Number three, my job as the mentor is to show up and maybe I'll give you some advice if it's useful, but I'll listen to you. And that's the way mentorship works. Yes. So the onus is on the mentee, not the mentor, to do essentially the legwork. So today I have over 50 people that I mentor. And it actually people say, oh, how do you make time for that? And I say, it's not that hard. I just basically say, I'm available whenever you are, other than when I'm playing pickleball. And, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever I can for you. And it kind of just works out that way. That's so that's what the good advice that uh, Steve Katz gave me uh, two decades ago. That's awesome. And, and, and I think that there's so many uh, golden nuggets in there of, of just in this industry that people are willing to share. Right. And even direct competitors are willing because we, we all have the common en enemy in this situation. And it, it's not each other in this particular battle. So the ability to give back and to your point is not only Steve give to you, but you're giving to 50 other people and those 50 other people are learning best practices. So, you know, each one of those is going to help 25 to 30 people. So it's exponential. What Steve did to you just exponentially is helping hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. That's again, another one of the things that I love about 
industry in general, but specifically this industry, because, you know, just like you were more than willing to come on this podcast, uh, it's just a testament to like, hey, give back to the industry and give back to me personally. So I really appreciate it. So with that, uh, why don't we uh, wrap up, Jim? And that's all we have for today. I thank you for listening. And again, thank you, Jim, for joining us and sharing your thoughts and your journey. As always, just great advice. And I knew this was going to be a special episode. So thank you. Please join us next time for another episode of the Executive Security Podcast. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you.